The book of Ephesians is one of the most practical books in the New Testament. In this episode, we begin a new series with an introduction into the Ephesian church and what life was like in the ancient gateway city to the Far East. All this and more as we continue our Year of the Family. I'm Pastor Philip Jackson, and this is the Married Now What Podcast. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 18. We're going to start a, a study this morning. Uh, we're going to go through the book of Ephesians, but before we do that, we have to we got to spend some time getting context, right? Every time we're reading God's Word, it's important for us to understand what we're reading, why we're reading it. Um, and at, in the 18th chapter of Acts, and then all of chapter 19, this is Paul's uh, planting of the church in Ephesus. So some things about um, Ephesians before we get to the setting. It's a letter that Paul wrote. He wrote a lot of letters to different churches around. Um, Ephesians is, uh, Ephesus was such a significant place that it was, um, it was one of the four or five major Roman cities in the entire empire. So it sits right on the coast of the, of the Mediterranean Ocean, and um, it was a major highway towards Rome. So you have not only were there, there are deep Greek roots there, but going back hundreds of years, it was a center of commerce. So if you want a, 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 a comparison to a modern day city, think of a city like San Francisco or New York or New Orleans, Singapore, um, Tokyo, um, uh, Dubai. Like this is a massive city, a massive city with a bunch of different cultures, a bunch of different heritages, a bunch of different faiths. Um, the um, it's, it's in the modern-day country of Turkey right now. The most significant thing in Ephesus was a giant temple to, it used to be the Greek goddess uh, Artemis, but uh, had been changed and appropriate. A lot of times what happened was that, that nations would, when they would conquer a people, they would just rename their gods. Okay, so you have the Greek pantheon of gods. Um, whenever the Romans took over and they took over, they conquered the known world, they just changed their names, essentially. So Artemis, who was the goddess of the moon, um, and fertility, she gets renamed Diana. So in our pop culture, Wonder Woman is Diana, right? Um, so the, uh, it's believed that Ephesus was founded, this is, this is just myth um, or legend, that Ephesus was founded by the Amazons. And so there's a very strong, strong female presence in Ephesus. So when we go through, when we read the book of Ephesians, the letter to the Ephesians, we're going to see some strong family themes. We're going to see some strong themes about submission to one another. He's going to go through in Ephesians chapter 5, and he's going to, Paul is going to describe the proper relationship between a husband and a wife. And um, the corresponding letter that he wrote, he wrote to Timothy. So Paul uh, plants the church in Ephesus, and he sends Timothy, his protege, to go, to go build up the church, to train pastors, not just in Ephesus, but also in the surrounding region. It would be just like if... Um, if we planted a church in New York, there would also be church plants around in the suburbs of New York as well. So think about we would send someone to go not just pastor the church in, in New York, but also to provide leadership to all these other churches around the region. Okay, So he sends Timothy over there to, to find pastors and to, to, to uh, build them up. One of the things that Paul tells Timothy that he goes through, he, just, he, he goes through and he teaches him about proper gender roles within the church. This is what it means to be a godly leader of a home and a man. This is what it means to be a wife or a mother in a home. This is what it means for church politics within the home, how the body is supposed to work together. So you can read 1 Timothy 
alongside Ephesians. And you can see on Ephesians side, we have a, a letter to the church itself that's describing church life. And then if you read 1 Timothy, you also see a, um, a description of leadership and the priorities of leadership within the context of this environment. Okay, So it, this was a, an incredible city, absolutely incredible. The, the temple to, to Diana um, would attract pilgrims from all over the Roman Empire. They would come on pilgrimages to worship. It was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. It was about as long and as wide as one and a half football fields. Picture this, picture a, a massive marble building, 150 foot tall marble columns that surround the structure. It's massive. Um, hundreds of eunuchs and priests and virgin priestesses and religious prostitutes served. Um, the goddess of, of uh, the moon was known for fertility rites and she was a huntress. She supposedly protected hunters and um, nature. So there's a lot of naturalistic worship. There's a lot of, um, one of the, one of the common practices we see this even in pagan religions today that they would, um, they would partake some sort of a, of a hallucinogen or something. And they would, they would get high in order to have religious experiences. So there was a lot of substance abuse within the, the temple itself as an act of worship. And then that would culminate in, in orgies and different, uh, sexual deviances. Um, they would, uh, people would come to the, to the temple. And in some, in some cases, I read that people would get so, um, so ginned up in this environment that, um, they, that some, some men, for instance, they would get so overwhelmed with what they were doing that they would literally castrate themselves and then offer their own body parts on the altar to the, God, to the goddess of Diana. So we're talking about a crazy place. Another thing is um, that this was a place where that was that a very strong pagan worship culture, um, necromancy, witchcraft, calling the dead, um, tarot readings, things like that was was pretty common in Ephesus. Um, the city was large; it was about three hundred thousand people. Um, it's about the same size as Tulsa proper. Uh, for some for some context for you, just to think about that. Um, there was a merging of three primary um, influences. There was the existing Greek uh, culture, the Hellenistic culture in Ephesus. And then you had the, um, the merging of religions from the Far East, from Asia, and from the Middle East. So you have a strong pagan and um, um, really witchcraft-driven uh, religion. And then you have um, the Roman government. Ephesus was a different kind of city than most cities in Rome. It was what's called a free city. So free cities were in charge of their own governance. They didn't have to worry about Rome coming in and saying, do this, this, and this, and this. They were free. So you had a prefect or a local governor that would run the city. And they, would, they had the ability to make their own laws, to do what they wanted. In some free cities, they had the ability to mint their own coins. And they would put the image of the city on their, on their currency. Um, it was an incredible privilege to be able to do that, to not have to worry about Rome. The idea of a free city was that it was meant to be a, um, a colony of Rome. Essentially, they would, they would lay out the city. One of the things that was important in Roman culture is that they would literally lay out their cities to be miniature versions of Rome. So it didn't matter where you went. So they would put their government buildings in specific places. They would put um, 
roads on certain grids and they would name them certain things. The idea was that if a Roman citizen came from a free city and they came to Rome, they would be able to navigate the city because they had, it's like they had always been living there. So these are essentially small ambassadorships of Rome. Small, think of like a, a micro-Rome. So Ephesus was a massive city. It was, it was an incredible to behold. So the temple to Diana, it was so iconic that, um, think of like um, an example would be the White House in connection to Washington, D.C. Or the University of Oxford to Oxford, England. Right when you when you hear when you hear about this location, you immediately think of the icon that's there. Right, think of the Washington Monument when you think about Washington D.C. That's what people thought of, and um, they had an amphitheater. In fact, this they still have the they have uncovered the ruins. Um, they had an amphitheater in Ephesus that held an estimated twenty five thousand people. Here's here so here's some comparison. The BOK Center holds about 19,000 people. The Paycom Center in Oklahoma City, or the Chesapeake Arena with the Thunder play, it holds about 20,000 people. Madison Square Garden holds about 21,000 people. This amphitheater is massive, absolutely massive. Um, so it's a little bit about Ephesus. Now I wanna read this, this account in Acts chapter 18 and 19. We're not gonna spend a ton of time here, but I think that it's important for us to understand our context, okay? So this is how um, the church came to be. The setting here is that Paul is finishing his second missionary journey. So he, he takes a total of three missionary journeys where he goes to the, to the people in Europe. He travels and he plants churches. And on his way back, he's going to stop at Ephesus, and he's got two friends traveling with him, a married couple, Aquila and Priscilla. These are his two right hands. They, they, uh, they are tent makers like he is. Um, that was his trade. He did that to pay his bills while he was pastoring and planting churches. And so he's going to come to Ephesus, and Aquila and Priscilla are going to be taken by the city. And so they are, I mean, they're going to be, they're going to, they're going to fall in love with the city. And so what they're going to do is they're going to stay behind. Paul's going to go home to Jerusalem, and then he's going to come back. Um, Aquila and Priscilla are going to meet some people in the synagogue that are followers of John the Baptist. And they're going to have incomplete understanding of what the gospel is. And so they're going to stay there and they're going to start to plant the church. And then Paul's going to meet them back again. And then there's going to be some drama unfold. So beginning in Acts chapter 18, let's start in verse 18. And Paul, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brothers and put out to sea for Syria. And with them were Priscilla and Aquila. Um, in Sincre, he had his hair cut, for he was keeping a vow. And they arrived at Ephesus. And he, went the, he, and he left them there. Now he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a, a longer time, he did not consent, but taking leave of them and saying, I will return to you again if God wills, he set sail for, from Ephesus. And when he had landed in Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and went down to Antioch. And having spent time there, he left and passed successively through the Galatian region to Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples." Okay, now we're, gonna, we're cutting back to, to Ephesus here in verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, arrived at Ephesus, and he was mighty in the Scriptures. Okay, I'm going to pause right there. Apollos is a significant disciple of the Lord. So Apollos is from Alexandria. Alexandria is a, is a um, city in northern Africa. It's named after Alexander the Great. It was the pinnacle of higher education of the day. Okay, so you have Athens, which is the center of philosophy. 
where, uh, where Romans and Greeks would come and they would debate all these things. You have Aristotle and Socrates and all these great names in Athens debating philosophy. Alexandria is the home of one of the other ancient wonders of the world, which is the Library of Alexandria. Okay, Alexander, one of the things that he did when he conquered the world, he started in Greece and he conquered well into Asia. One of the things that he did was as he spread Greek culture around the world, he would collect all kinds of documents that he could find, significant writings. One of those collections was the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. And so he would take all these documents and he would, he would bring them back to Alexandria. This was going to be his statement in history. Um, and he was buried there, if I remember correctly. So Alexander, he had this massive library. And so because all these writings are there, they do things. They're translating these ancient writings into Greek to preserve the, um, the history. So they translate the Old Testament uh, from Hebrew into Greek. It's called the Septuagint. There were 70 authors, 70 translators. There were, there were um, Greek uh, Jews. And um, so if you, if you ever read in your Bible where there's notations that has the Roman numeral, numerals LXX, that's a, that's a statement about the Septuagint, the reason why it's 70 in Roman numerals. Um, it's referred to in shorthand as the LXX, that's the Septuagint. So the reason why all this is, is significant is that it says that Apollos is a man who was mighty in the Scriptures. In the original language, mighty, what, the, only other way, the only other way that that's, that can be translated is um, something that's boiling. It's like water that's boiling. Apollos is a man who is educated. He's presumably wealthy. Um, he is not a dumb person. He is very well studied. And so when it says that Apollos shows up, he immediately has a grasp on Scripture. This isn't a dude who's just like throwing around theology and throwing around ideas. He is someone who is very astute. Okay? And in fact, if you go on and you read more of Paul's writings, he mentions Apollos many times. He becomes a really great ally for Paul. Beginning in verse 25. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. That's John the Baptist. Verse 26, And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained him the way of God more accurately. So Apollos, he gets up and he had heard half of the scripture. He had heard half of the gospel. So you remember Paul, John the Baptist's, um, his mission, right? Was to prepare the way of the Lord. So John got up and he would preach over and over again. He would challenge religious figures and he would say, the Messiah is coming, he is coming, he is coming. So somewhere along the way, he met Apollos and Apollos, he realized, yes, all the things are aligned for the Messiah to come. And so Apollos takes this message that, that John the Baptist has been preaching and he's, and he's going around to all these Jewish communities on his own dime, uh, presumably, telling them, trying to prepare the way for the gospel. So he gets up in front of the synagogue and he says, don't you, you need to understand that the, the Messiah is coming. He's almost here. He hadn't heard about the final, um, the final act of what Jesus did. Verse 27. Uh, so Priscilla and Aquila, they pull him aside. And when he wanted to go across to Achai, uh, Achai uh, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he had arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. I love Apollos because he shows um, incredible humility. He's one of those men who came alongside the Apostle Paul and he taught, he was educated, he knew his Bible, he knew what God had said and the promises that God had made. 
and yet he did not let his education get in the way of his teachability. So he has this tent-making couple pull him aside and say, hey, um, you've got it, but you need a little bit more. And they began to show him who Jesus was in the fullness of the gospel in Jesus. And to the point to where he hears the testimony of Jesus being died, buried, and resurrected. And he's like, this is the guy. And so immediately he turns into an advocate. Um, an incredible story. Okay, Ephesians 19, verse 1. Now it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper regions and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, No, we have not even heard of the Holy Spirit is being received. And he said, and he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. Okay, so these are some of the same group that, are, that were running with Apollos. They, have, they hadn't quite heard the whole thing yet. Verse 4, Then Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was, who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Okay, the foundation of the church, these guys at Ephesus, they knew that the Messiah was coming, and he said, okay, again, you're close, but not quite all the way there. I want to tell you about Jesus and who the Messiah is. I'm going to give you his name. And as soon as they hear his name, then they believe. In verse 6, And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. And there were, and there were in all about twelve men. And after he entered the synagogue, he continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. And when some were becoming hardened and were not believing, speaking evil of the way, that's the church, capital W is the way, before the multitude, and he left them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily to the, to the school of Tyrannus. Thus took place for two years, so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks." Okay, so Paul, he, he goes to the synagogue, which is his normal thing. He's in Ephesus, this is a massive city, right? And he begins to teach them the fullness of Scripture about what ha what's happened with Jesus. And out of all that, he has 12 men who, who come alongside him. It's interesting that that number comes up again. Because um, one of the things that, this, that is profound about the way that God has designed the communities within the church is he starts with an abiding relationship with Christ, a level one relationship. Then he moves to one-on-one -on -one discipleship, Peter, James, and John. This is the model of Jesus' ministry. And then his community gets bigger with the 12. This is an example of like a life group. And then he gets a little bit bigger with his 70 or 120 followers. That's his farm team that starts the church. This is an example of a Sunday school class like this. And then his level five is feeding the 5,000, broadly talking about the gospel. So now Paul has his 12 disciples. This is interesting. So he begins to lay the foundation for the church in Ephesus. Verse 11, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that, the clothes, so that cloths or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out. This is, by the way, there's two things in this passage that we just read. The first is, is being perverted now, because, now in our generation because there are some people who say that you can't be saved in order for you to be saved, you have to have received a special anointing of the Holy Spirit. Say, oh, you might be saved, but do you have the Holy Spirit? And like there's this whole thing where somebody who is an apostle has to come and pray for you, and then you can receive, and the sign of the Holy Spirit is that you're supposed to be able to speak in tongues and to prophesy. But there's a lot of bad translations about what that looks like. 
I, in all of my understanding of Scripture, specifically in like the tongue gifts, it's a specific spoken language. So if I have the gift of tongues, just like I have the gift of, if I have the gift of teaching, I'm able to teach. The gift of tongues is one who, who has been supernaturally gifted to understand language. It's a reversal of the curse of Babel. Um, the, the prophesying that he's talking about here is speaking true, biblical truth, understanding biblical truth and having a fervency for it. Okay. This other part about here about the cloths and aprons that Paul had, there's a, there are actually ministries who sell um, handkerchiefs that have been supposedly uh, been blessed or, or have graced the forehead of their, of their leader with has his sweat on it, and they literally sell those as like healing tokens. It's a thing. It's super weird. Um, verse 13. But also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to invoke over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I implore you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. So these are Jews claiming the name of Jesus. 14. Now seven sons named Sceva, one named Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, subdued all of them, and utterly prevailed against them, uh, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Weird story, right? These, these guys are trying to invoke the name of Jesus and Paul, casting out demons. The demon-possessed guy's like, okay, I know Jesus. I know Paul. No idea who you guys are. And he turns on them. He attacks them so violently that he tears their clothes off, and they run away like naked and ashamed. Super weird. Verse 17. And this became known to all, both Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Also, many of those who had believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices. Talking about their their lifestyles. They're confessing their sins. Verse 19. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and were burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the price of them and found it 50 pieces of silver, so that the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Okay, I don't. I, it's been a while since I've done the math on the fifty pieces of silver. We're talking about a ton of money. Books were so rare and so valuable in that day, especially religious books. These people are burning fortunes. They're literally burning money. Um, it helps you save several million dollars. Yikes! There you go. Um, so we're talking about massive heart change. So this naturally is going to cause some problems. Right. So verse twenty-one. Now, after these things were finished, Paul purposed in the spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Now, about the time uh, there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. Your Bible may say something, something different. The Bible sometimes will use phrases like no small disturbance to kind of uh, speak tongue-in-cheek about how significant an event was. He's saying there was a massive problem. Massive problem. No small disturbance means it's a massive problem. Verse 24. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. Okay, there's another phrase there. No little business. It's massive financial loss here. Verse 25. These are gathered together. There's he, these he gathered together with the workers of similar trades and said... Men, you know that our prosperity is from this business. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, 
But in almost all of Asia, this Paul is, has persuaded and turned away a considerable crowd, saying that things made with hands are not God's. And not only is there danger that this trade of ours will fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis he considered as worthless, and that she, whom all of Asia and the world worship, is even about to be brought down by her ma- from her majesty. As a side note, these idols are sold even today. Verse 28, when they heard this and, and were filled with rage, they began crying out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And the city was filled with the, with the confusion, and they rushed with one accord into the theater. That's the theater we just talked about, 25,000 people, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. And when Paul wanted to go into the assembly, the disciples would not let him. Paul's wanting to get into this into the BOK arena with 25,000 angry people, and his, his followers won't let him do it. Man, talk about boldness. Um, okay, verse 33. No, that's not right. Verse 31. Also, some of the uh, Asiarchs, uh, who were friends of his, sent to him and repeatedly urged him not to venture into the theater. So then some were shouting one thing and some another. For the meeting was in confusion, and the majority did not know for what reason they had come together. And some of the crowd concluded it was Alexander, since the Jews had put him forward, and having, motiv- and having motioned with his hand, Alexander was, ha- was intending to make a defense to the assembly. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, a single cry arose from them, from them all, as they shouted for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So they see that, that he's a Jewish person, who is trying to get their attention, and these Romans, they start shouting. They realize this guy is um, not only are Jews hated at this time, but they they there's so much anti-Semitism within. That's what this has been a consistent theme throughout history. That that's what they're talking about here. That they a lot of the people that were there had no idea why they were there. But then but then when they realized that that there was a bunch of Jews in the front that everybody was pissed off about. Now we have something all of us can be angry about because we brought the Jews together. 35. Now after calming the crowd, the city clerk said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there after all who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is guardian of the temple of the great, of the great Artemis and of the image which fell down from heaven? So since these are undeniable facts, you ought to keep calm and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of our goddess. So then if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are in session and the proconsuls are available. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you want anything beyond this, it shall be settled in a lawful meeting. For indeed, we are in danger of being accused of a riot in connection with today's events, since there is no cause for which we can give as, as on account for this disorderly gathering. After saying this, he dismissed the meeting. Okay, here's what's at stake here. Is that this guy gets up. Uh, he's the pro-council of the, of the city. And he says, look, we have rioted here. So here's some things that are in jeopardy. If, the Roman, if a Roman free city lost control of its, of its citizens, they would lose their status as a free city. That means that their tax status, their ability to govern themselves, their ability to be able to, to operate in everyday life would go away. So what this proconsul is saying, it's like, look, don't get Rome all, we don't want to get on their radar. We're having a, we got a massive problem here. Okay, step back and think about who Paul is too. 
Paul is a Roman citizen. So imagine if you have a Greek city in the Roman Empire that pulls a Roman citizen in and they persecute them and they beat them without trial. That's a capital offense. It would be um, a massive scandal. One that would probably cause the city of Ephesus to be destroyed by the Roman army. So you have a huge issue here. So the pro-council gets up and he's like, whoa, 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 please stop. Stop, stop, stop. We understand that we're significant. We understand that, that, that Artemis is, is our goddess. But guys, don't lose your minds here. Okay? And so he's, he quiets the crowd and he disperses everybody. But this is a spectacle. And um, this is the setting of what the church in Ephesus was, was going to have to go through. So Paul, he, he encourages the disciples and he leaves Ephesus. But what this does, though, is this gives us a setting to understand um, what they're dealing with. So Paul is there and um, plants the church. He spends he spends several years in Ephesus. And um, something that's also significant about Ephesus, I didn't realize this until I started doing my reading, that um, it was such a significant city that after Paul left, another disciple came and stayed in Ephesus, the disciple John. So John, who's given charge of Mary, the mother of Jesus, he moves from Jerusalem to Ephesus and he brings Mary with him. This is what church history tells us. And um, he's there operating and teaching. And so imagine him working alongside Timothy. They're building the church. They're training people. John is the youngest of the disciples. So he's not as, as old as everybody else as time goes on. So John begins to teach alongside Timothy. And Paul writes a letter to both of them, primarily to F, the, the letter of Ephesus. And he also writes the letter to Timothy as guidelines to help them know how to navigate church life. As John is there, he, he, while he's in Ephesus, he writes all of his documents. He writes his gospel, and he writes his three letters, and he writes the Revelation. Um, the island of Patmos is just a few miles off the coast of Ephesus. So when, when John goes into exile, he gets sent to the island of Patmos, where he receives the revelation uh, from God about the end times. It's right there. So after his exile, then he comes back to Ephesus, and that's where he dies. There's actually a lot of uh, church history and a lot of um, things that have been built in honor of John in Ephesus. So there's a lot of rich, deep um, church history in Ephesus. When Paul writes the letter to the Ephesians, um, there is a, um, there's a couple of ways that, that scholars have talked about Ephesians. One is that there are, some, uh, there are some manuscripts that don't actually have the name to the Ephesians in the manuscript. And um, so it's believed that, that the, the book of Ephesians was written in two, for two primary audiences. One was for the audience in Ephesus. So Paul is writing a letter. So he plants the church. He goes and he is in prison in Rome. And so he writes a letter, which is basically a 101 manual for the church. And he sends it to, to Ephesus and t- teaches them how to, how to do life. But he also, he wrote it in a way, in a non-personal way, so that it would be circulated around the area. So what would happen is you would have uh, churches, not just in Ephesus, but in all these other Galatian cities that would also receive a copy, and they would know how to live life as well. So it's, uh, it could be like a circular or a newspaper or something that would be passed around. One of the things about Ephesians is it's not as personal as his other letters. Um, if you turn over there, we're going to do the first couple of verses. But um, a lot of Paul's letters... They are written to specific people, and um, he would uh, he would usually 
give some sort of a personal greeting at the very first, but he doesn't do that with Ephesians. He he's very um, very broad in his subjects, and um, he's particularly talking to Gentiles. So think about these people. He said that they were coming together. They were burning all their their pagan books. They were confessing their lifestyles to the to the church. They were their lives were being changed. So you have this demographic in Ephesus, this massive cultural melting pot that have no concept of godly living and biblical living at all. They are, um, th- this is all brand new to them. Like there's all kinds of language being talked about atonement and sacrifices and circumcision and being set apart in the temple, in the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, what God did in Egypt, all these things are brand new to them. And so Paul has to write them uh, some guidelines to be able to, to see things correctly. Because another one of the things that they're dealing with also is you have um, you have Jews who are they're called Judaizers who are trying to force people to adhere to the Old Testament law. So they say, okay, yeah, Jesus is the Messiah, that's great, but now all of us, including you Gentiles, have to do what all of all of us Jews do. So you got to do all the Jewish stuff. You got to keep the festivals. You got to do um, keep all the days and everything like that. They would be these these Gentiles would be coming out of religions like. Um, witchcraft and necromancy and exorcism and dark magic and the magic arts and uh, those kinds of things. Um, it was, it's interesting to see how uh, Paul and Apollos and Aquila and Priscilla begin to, to cultivate and to teach people to follow Jesus and to do it uh, in a New Testament way. Um, after he stayed there for two years and he left, um, there's going to be a constant rotation of godly leadership in Ephesus. And um, it's going to, it, it played an incredible role in the life of the church, especially in the early, early days. But fast forward um, 35 years when John is on the island of Patmos and he has a vision from God. In Revelation, um, God rebukes them. He rebukes the church at Ephesus because they had gotten so good at doing church that they forgot their first love, their relationship with Christ. And so he, he calls them back to that. Um, the book of Ephesians, the letter to the Ephesians, is, has covers three primary subjects. The first one is soteriology. Soteriology is um, the doctrine of salvation. Okay, we're going to learn some words here. Soteriology is the study. Ology is the study of salvation. That's the first subject. The second one is ecclesiology. Ecclesiology is church life. These are words that are important for us to know. Soteriology is the doctrine of salvation. Ecclesiology is the doctrine of the church or church life. Um, And then... Spiritual warfare is the third is the third one, and the reason why spiritual warfare is so significant for the Ephesian church is because of where they live. Spiritual warfare was, is something that they would have hands-on experience. So think about the story that we read in Acts chapter nineteen, where you have these Jews who are trying to do spiritual warfare. They're trying to cast demons out of this person, and they invoke the name of Jesus and they invoke the name of Paul. And the guy turns on them and attacks them. When we think of spiritual warfare in our context in 21st century America, we think of, oh, well, you know, the devil's really attacking my mind. I'm having a hard day, right? We're not, we don't have people attacking us and ripping off our clothes. 
So when he talks about standing firm and putting on the whole armor of God, yes, it's a metaphor, but there's some very real things. They're walking to work or they're doing everyday life. Their children are being schooled in, in a city where people are actively under influences and they are, they're practicing demonic things. We got massive, massive spiritual uh, implications here. So these are the three primary subjects of the church. But the letter itself is broken up into two sections. Chapters 1 through 3 is theological. Uh, we're talking about theory. Remember, your theology is the most basic thing about you because theology is the study of God, right? So how you see God is how you see the world. How you see God will determine how you see yourself. It'll determine how you uh, see the world around you, how you see your relationships, how you process your work, how you everything about you. Okay, so your theology is important. So the first the first three chapters, he talks about theology. The, the, the second three chapters, chapters four through six, are all practical. He's going to talk about practical ways that we live out this theology. So as we read the book, we're going to take our time going through it, but this is the roadmap of where we're going. Okay, we're going, to, we're going to study, okay, what does it mean for us to be saved? The first several chapters he talks about that. It culminates in Ephesians, um, Ephesians 2. We have the great testimony of grace. By grace through faith you have been saved. It's not of yourself, but it's a gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. You have these key passages of Scripture about salvation and about ecclesiology, what it means for us. I'm missing a Y. Um, what it means for us as a church, for us to do daily life together. What is it, why is it important for us to be in a life group or be in a Sunday school class or be close to people of faith? And then, uh, and then finally, how do we actively work this out? Because whether or not our, our generation will accept it or not, we are in a war. We are at war. And we are not, um, if we ignore that, we do it to our own peril. Um, the, uh, these are important subjects to them, obviously, um, for the reasons I stated before. But... Um, for us, this is really important because think about it. Think about the generation that we live in. We, we, Everine is a very Bible-heavy church. It's a very heavy teaching church. Um, sometimes that can be exhausting. But understand that, that the generation that we live in broadly, most people who profess to be believers have no idea about these things. They have no concept of biblical, biblical, scripture, biblical uh, understanding or lessons. And so... Our generation is a lot like the audience of the original letter of Ephesians, where Paul is going through and he's teaching people who are illiterate about biblical principles about how to live biblically. So not only is this going to be applicable for, for us as we are continuing our year of the family, where we're, we're figuring out, okay, how are we putting our lives together? But it's also going to be important for us as we frame our expectations dealing with our culture, dealing with our generation, with our friends who aren't um, part of a church that, that is uh, driving them towards heavy Bible teaching. So it's going to be beneficial both personally and also as we share. Um, one, of the also, one of the things that I also love is that we, since we spend so much time in God's Word um, doing our study or doing lessons or different things, we're down in the valley a lot. Okay, One of the things I love about Ephesians is that it casts a vision for us to get out of the valley and to look at things from the mountaintop. To be able to see the whole the whole picture, um, we are we are busy with studying God's word and learning different things about how it's changing our lives. But um, it's different when you can get up high and you can see the view of the whole thing. 
couple of months ago, we went see friends, went to see friends in Colorado, and we hiked up. Me and my buddy hiked up to the top of the mountain range, and we looked at. We could see for miles. It was a different view than we were down in, than when we were down in the trees, and that's what that's what Ephesians does. Is it gives us a really deep understanding of what uh, what God has done for us. Um, some of the key challenges of the Ephesian church are relationships between Jews and Gentiles, sexual promiscuity and pagan worship, divisions over gender roles in the family and in church leadership, false teachers, difficulty in relationships between church members. We don't have any of that today. Um, isolation from society uh, for not conforming to pagan worship that was integrated into everyday life and economics. One of the things, if you guys watch that video that I posted on our Facebook group, um, one of the things that they did is they had a major bazaar in the city that they would buy and sell goods. And in order to enter the bazaar, you had to you had to put incense in the in the brazier for the emperor to burn incense to him. Uh, that's something they couldn't enter that bazaar to, to buy their goods or to sell their goods without doing that. And so there's there's practical issues there. Um, there were abuses for benevolence. The church was being taken advantage of in some ways. You have influences of witchcraft, and necromancy, devil worship, um, the occult. Major issues. Um. Really quickly, I'm going to take the last five minutes here. Actually, no, I'm not. I'm going to say, I'm going to say this. We'll, we'll actually get into the text next week um, with the first 14 verses of one because I, I don't want to get into this and then us run out of time. So that's a really broad view of what Ephesians is about, where we're heading, what are some of the subjects we're going to be talking about. And I would encourage you, Ephesians is a, is a short book. It's only six chapters long. So if you, uh, if you want, one of the things that I've done before in private study is short books like this or like James or Philippians to read one chapter a day um, for six days and then do that for several weeks to read it over and over and over again. And as you spend time in it, as you go deeper, what's going to happen is it's going to become more and more rich to you where you start to see, oh, wow, this is how all this fits together. And yes, this is, this is connected to this passage and this is connected to this story. And, and God has a way of teaching us and making it come alive. My hope as we go through this study is not that we would just have a better understanding of Ephesians. My hope is always that you all would fall in love with God's Word, that you would, would get to the place to where you crave it, like you do a piece of chocolate cake. Like it's, I, I cannot wait to get into this book because it is so rich and it changes my life. So we, uh, we're going to spend some time. It's going to take us a while to get through Ephesians, but I think it's going to be good. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like and subscribe to our content. We are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Married Now What podcast is a ministry of Evergreen Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and is meant to be a resource for in-depth Bible study for couples striving to build their lives on the truth of God's Word. For more information and additional lessons, please visit our website, evergreenbc.org.